0: Lopid at large. I'm Lunded Lopid. Hundred years ago, a group of pioneers joined together to create what has become one of Britain's most famous institutions, the British Broadcasting Corporation, the BBC. Since its beginnings in 1922, the BBC has become quite influential, broadcasting to over 200 countries in over 40 languages. David Hendy's new book, The BBC A People's History, assesses its difficulties and successes in living up to its self professed mission quote, to inform, educate, and entertain. The book is published by Profile Books and brings media historian and broadcaster David Hendy to our show now. Welcome. Oh, uh, hello. Now, why have you subtitled your book A People's History? Are you referring to the listening public or the staff?
1: Ah, well, both, really. I mean, I should say, by the way, the, the, the book has a slightly different title in America. In America, it's called the BBC, A Century on Air. Yeah. So The People's History is actually the, the UK title. Mm-hmm. But yet you're... It, well, it, that's the copy I
0: received.
1: Ah, well, um, it's the same book inside. Yeah. And and I guess there, it is important, that idea of people, because, yes, it's it's the listeners, it's the viewers, because... Uh, one, a great broadcasting historian, uh, Asa Briggs, once said that to write the history of broadcasting is to write the history of everything else. I mean, television and radio is like, it's like a, a, these huge corridors through which all life uh, travels. I mean, you know, uh, they, they're the backdrop to our life. And so broadcasting history is social history, of course. We all have memories of the television or the radio that we watched and we fell in love with when we were growing up. So it is a people's history for that reason, but it is also a people's history because it is really about the people who made the BBC what it what it was, and and that's the staff of the BBC. Because I I think there is a there is a, a popular myth of the BBC that it is this rather grand mm. forbidding perhaps a monolithic kind of corporation, dignified national institution, rather formal, rather stiff, and that programs are are made in a very rigid way to order and so on. But actually, as someone who once worked for the BBC and has spent a quarter of a century or more studying it, It's that doesn't feel right. The BBC has been made by the people who worked in it. And these are flesh and blood people. They're people with passions, with ideals, uh, with biases, with fallibilities. Uh, And so getting in looking at the history of the BBC, this last hundred years with the program makers, center stage i think gives us a, a fresher view of the bbc as something kind of human
0: many americans are surprised that the bbc isn't run by the british government doesn't parliament control the bbc budget by setting the license fee
1: it does periodically and of mm. course it, it's has
0: become the, controversial again hasn't it
1: It's always been controversial. Uh, I mean, someone once said that the BBC has crisis in its bones. And one of the reasons for that is that its relationship with the state is complicated. Now, it's not a state broadcaster, nor is it a commercial broadcaster. It is uh, a public corporation, but uh, its income is the license fee. It it doesn't get its income from, from taxation directly from the government, but the government in Parliament has the power to set the level of the license fee. So everyone who owns a TV set pays the license fee. Um, And therefore, it's pretty well something that everyone in the United Kingdom Uh, pays uh, pretty well every household, and they pay it, as it were, directly to the BBC. The government doesn't get involved in that relationship. But But what the government does do is it sets the level of the license fee, and that, of course, gives it a little bit of influence and power. It sets it every 10 years or thereabouts.
0: And And the the British cultural secretary said recently that the license fee would be frozen for two years. Uh, Yeah,
1: yeah and of course that and it's been frozen before <laughs> in fact it's gone down in value in real terms by about 30% since 2010 since the conservatives came to power and and so uh, that does give the government the ability to as it were reward the bbc by by raising the license fee or punishing the BBC by by lowering or freezing the license fee. Mm. And in the case of, of the current government, threatening to end it altogether, yeah. which uh, would be truly traumatic.
0: Well, it's BBC. been suggested that the BBC transform itself into a volunteer subscription service like Netflix. Uh, but <laughs> uh, then in this country, public broadcasting, uh, much of it, Not this station that you're on, but uh, most of it um, is also supported by what are called funding credits—really, advertisements. Mm
1: -hmm. Well, I—I mean, so the BBC historically has uh, has been uh, the national broadcaster. Mm -hmm. So it's important to kind of think of it. I mean, from a from a British perspective, the BBC was there first and commercial broadcasting came a lot later. So, yeah. so the BBC in a sense occupied and has continued to occupy a sort of central place in British life and British culture and, and politics and journalism. It's, it is by some way, the largest a, a news gathering organization in the world. It is actually uh, the, the most prolific commissioner of drama in the world if you put together all the radio channels it has as well as the television it broadcasts as you uh, alluded at the start of the uh, show to you know broadcasts in more than 40 languages it's got a worldwide audience for its overseas broadcasts of about 500 million people and in the uk 91% 91% of us use the BBC every week. It is the most popular but, online but, site. But a so recent so survey
0: a recent survey estimated that British adults consume an average 18 hours a week of BBC content. That's less than three hours a day. So it's not all that much. But I remember when I was a student in London in 1960 and 61, if you wanted to hear rock and roll, you had to listen to Radio Luxembourg.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm look, I mean, I, I I think of myself as a critical friend of the BBC and my, my history, I hope, doesn't pull its punches when it when it looks at the ways in which the BBC has failed. It's been behind the curve. And one of those moments was in the early 1960s when uh, young people, teenagers, it really had very little satisfaction from the BBC when it came to rock and roll and music. And yes, they did have to tune into Radio Luxembourg and so on. Now, actually, to give the BBC its credit, the BBC was at the time pushing to broadcast more music, but it was restricted in so-called needle time. In other words, it, had, it was allowed to have 30 hours of music for all its radio uh, stations each week, 30 hours. It wasn't very much. So the BBC was pushing for more, uh, but you know, the, it was still a sort of fairly conservative organization. There were plenty of people in it who wanted more pop music, who wanted to embrace the future in that way. But yes, in, ni- in the early 1960s, uh, as a teenager, you had to tune elsewhere
0: if you wanted to have your finger on the pulse musically, that's for sure. D- despite the fact that Britain was the source of so much popular music, the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, etc. Uh, let's go back to the beginnings. You write that the BBC's key founders, John, uh, I may be mispronouncing their names, John Reith, Arthur Burrows, and Cecil Lewis, had little in common other than that they'd all served in World War I. So what brought them together?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think it's really important that the people who started the BBC weren't, in a sense, radio enthusiasts or broadcasters. They didn't really know very much about broadcasting, or at least two out of those three names that you mentioned. Just take them one at a time. Cecil Lewis, uh, he was just 24 years old in 1922, incredibly young, and he became uh, deputy director of programs. He'd been a, a fighter pilot in the First World War. He'd he loved the experience, the thrill of flying, the sense of purpose, the machinery and so on. But he looked down from his aeroplane on the western front below and despaired of the destruction and the waste of human life and so on. And and when he came out of the war, he was looking for some way of redeeming humanity. How can we repair this world? How can we increase mutual understanding? And for him, it was going to be art and poetry and music, but how that would work, he wasn't quite sure. Uh, John Reith, a bit older, 33 years old, brought up in a deeply religious household in Glasgow and brought up to believe that he, he had to serve God by serving the public in some way, <sighs> do good in some way. And he wasn't quite sure how, but he felt he had a mission in life. And one of his big influences was the Victorian writer Matthew Arnold, who'd, who'd written in Culture and Anarchy, his famous book, that, that uh, society and culture, w- culture was what was going to hold humanity together. And he talked about sweetness and light. But it was no good, sweetness and light, his version of culture, being restricted to just the few. It had to prevail, he said. Everyone had to experience culture in order to improve well. and protect humanity. So so there were these ideas. And then Arthur but Wait, wait, wait. wait. Third, A basic yeah, commercial yeah.
0: principle <laughs> is that demand creates supply, that— markets will provide what people want but Reith believed the opposite that supply creates demand uh, he, he and, did and yeah. since he was the BBC's first general manager um, did he live by the, that rule
1: I think he did and I mean it, it, in many ways it became hardwired into BBC thinking and and his reasoning here was uh, actually when you unpack it sounds more reasonable first of all it was that um, how do we know what we want until we experience it? We can only choose from the existing available uh, options. But what about something that we don't yet know about? What about art or culture that we haven't yet experienced? How could we begin to choose that or express our preference for it without knowing about it? Um, and so he, he believed that it we, we are imperfect creatures at knowing what we want and what's good for us. That was part of it. And the other uh, reasoning for this was that actually um, the commercial system itself doesn't always uh, act efficiently at delivering. The the, the great uh, British cultural critic Richard Hoggart once said that there is but a short step between providing what the public wants and over-providing what the public wants. And, and Reith and a lot of other people in the BBC believe that through careful planning, the point was that the BBC was in a privileged position. It didn't have to worry about ratings and it didn't have to worry about mm-hmm. political interference. And therefore, it would be free through rational planning, if you like, to ensure the provision of the widest range of good material as possible. His great phrase, Reith's great phrase was, the point of the BBC was to bring the best that had been thought and said and done to as many people as possible. And And that to as many people as possible is a really important
0: part of the equation. And didn't uh, the the third of the founders, Arthur Burroughs, know the most about the technical aspects of radio because his wartime experience was involved monitoring German propaganda uh, did that lead him to uh, view broadcasting in idealistic terms? Because his philosophy was, if you can spread disinformation, why not <laughs> spread the truth? Yeah, and,
1: and this, again, was another important influence of the First World War. I mean, you know, he would listened in to enemy wireless propaganda. He was horrified by it. He referred to it as like a poison gas. So, yes, why not, as he put it, saturate the ether with truth ions? You know, so so he was the one who who... He came up with the idea, as it were, that radio was the solution to what Cecil Lewis and John Reith were looking for in terms of their broader cultural and moral missions. Radio was something that potentially was freely accessible and could reach into every home, and therefore it could precisely deliver that Reithian dream, which was to bring the best that had been thought and said to as many people as possible, U- universally available and equally accessible. That was the idea. Which incidentally is why the whole issue of subscription is so um, traumatic for the BBC, because it challenges the basic principle of the BBC, which was uh, the best of everything to as many people as possible.
0: My guest on today's Leonard located Lodge is David Hendy whose latest book is the BBC, A Century on Air, published by Public Affairs. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Hadn't radio broadcasting begun in the United States a few years earlier? Uh, There was a news program on BMK in Detroit in 1920, and the first college radio station began broadcasting from Union College in Schenectady even earlier that year. So was uh, radio mostly for hobbyists at that time? How, How do people listen, and how expensive were home radios?
1: Well, I mean, you're right in that America was two or three years ahead of of Britain here in terms of people listening. Uh, It was a lot of hobbyists. It it tended to be not exclusively but tended to be men and young boys who enjoyed tinkering with the equipment and the equipment was 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 fiddly you needed kind of an elaborate aerial setup to receive the signals you you had to kind of play with little bits of kind of minerals and wires and so on to kind of tune in to these sort of uh, voices and bits of music that were coming crackling and hissing through the through the ether and you had to listen on headphones so in the early days of radio, really, and, and in Britain before the BBC got established, it was a, a hobbyist thing where, where really the, the the thrill and excitement was less about what you heard, but the very fact that you heard anything at all. And you might be hearing a signal from, from many, many miles away, especially at night when the signals travelled further. So there was a huge sort of romance and excitement about this sort of uncanny ability to fish out of the ether human voices and music but there wasn't in those really early days any sort of vision of what a broadcasting schedule was and now that's something where you know by the time the bbc is established in 1922 there are already over 300 radio stations across the united states so these radio stations now have a kind of a, an idea about its its music maybe and its and its and its talks and its adverts and so on. So the idea of a a schedule of programs is starting to emerge. But it's all still a little bit ad hoc.
0: But the first show, the first broadcast, was kind of uh, included a lot of hissing um, sounds. It was at 6 p.m. on November 14th, 1922. And uh, uh, what listeners heard was, hello, hello, (laughs) 2LO calling, 2LO calling. Uh, stand by for one. Bo- this is the British Broadcasting Company, 2LO. Stand by for one minute, please. And, and then what followed was short news and weather bulletins read twice, be- the second time slowly so that listeners could take notes.
1: Yeah, I mean, because it doesn't Ooh, sound terribly so paternalistic. Exciting, does it? <laughs> it doesn't sound terribly exciting. I mean, it, you know, uh, we think of this now as a great historic moment. I mean, at the time, uh, the only way that people would have known this was even happening was if they looked in an inside page of the London Times, which briefly mentioned it and put the words, bro- put inverted commas around the word broadcasting mm-hmm. because it was so unfamiliar. So, so, yes, it would have been just a sort of very few listeners. And it was fairly unsensational start. Uh, really, it was starting then because there was a, a general election the next day. Uh, and, and that's when things really kind of kicked into gear so that the BBC was, on air in time to report the results of the election. But yes, it was, a, it was an unprepossessing mm. start. And, and
0: Arthur Burroughs was the, the man reading that. Uh, what was what? the state of technology at the time? Were they able to record and edit speech or did all programs have to be live? Because I was amused uh, when I read about the sign that was next to microphones that read, if you sneeze or rustle papers, you will deafen thousands
1: yeah it was all live Uh, i mean by the 30s there were crude means of recording but they were pretty rough and ready and and difficult and cumbersome so pretty well everything was live and and it was unfamiliar so uh, you know, the radio studio was a new concept. When the BBC moved into its first purpose built, uh, well, not quite purpose built, adapted headquarters, mm-hmm. Savoy Hill, in 1923, it, it had uh, a handful of studios that it kitted out rather like sort of domestic uh, living rooms with with sofas and pot plants and and lovely lighting and and curtains and, and so on, in order to domesticate what was otherwise an unfamiliar environment. And what rather ruined it was that right in the middle of these studios was The microphone and the microphone was an unfamiliar bit of technology, Mm. especially then. I mean, it was a it was an enormous, ugly thing, a big round rubber magnet, a big round magnet slung in a rubber sling contained in a box uh, with wheels on, which had a cloth put over it. So it didn't look too alarming to guests. And then you had, um, you know, performers. Writers maybe or actors or singers or music hall artists who would come into the studio and would be hugely intimidated by this weird contraption that was in front of them and the notion that what they said would be transmitted to thousands of people. All around the country, the, the fear of the microphone was something that I think we kind of underestimate. But it was an important part of well, those those early years.
0: Well, uh, uh, in this country, we have seven words we can't say on the air. The BBC forbade different words: bloody and bugger. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes. Well, uh, what was interesting was that actually, um, so so this this. This, of course, varied with time. So in the, in the 1950s, these words were sort of unsayable. In the 60s, they were sayable. And in fact, they weren't even words that had to be referred up to senior management. There were, of course, one or two words, um, that, and you can guess what they are, that had to be referred up to senior management. But even, even in 19, 1968, uh, there was the first scripted, permitted use on BBC radio of uh, the F word. Mm -hmm. Um, And and that's partly because- We can't still say it here. No. Uh, OK. Well, we can't
0: say it on over the air broadcast. We can say it on cable. And okay. it's very, very complicated. Uh, but yeah, I, I, so so it, it,
1: it's sayable. It, it, in other words, it's sayable on the BBC and has been since 1968, provided there is, quote, mm-hmm. you know, a good artistic uh-huh. uh, reason for it.
0: Now, did many women work in positions of authority at the BBC at the start, like Hilda uh, Matheson? So,
1: yeah. So, I mean, you, you mentioned Hilda Matheson. Uh, she joined the BBC in 1926. A fascinating figure. I mean, she'd been involved in British counter espionage work in Rome during the First World War. Then she'd gone on and worked as a political secretary to the to the MP Nancy Astor and Reith, John Reith, recruited her. Um, because he was he was really interested in her political connections, her artistic connections, and she became director of talks. And talks was a it was a huge and important department in the BBC. It covered anything from, I don't know, a casual sort of ten minute chat about a foggy day in London or tinning sardines to a series of uh, important lectures about unemployment policy or, or foreign policy and so on. So uh, she was in charge of talks programs and she was important in two ways, I think, for the BBC. One, um, that she had huge and important connections with the word of world of politicians, with intellectuals and artists, particularly the Bloomsbury set, Virginia Woolf and Vita Sackville-West and, and and John Maynard Keynes and H G Wells and so on so she was would help recruit important people and persuade them that it was actually quite good to come onto the bbc and talk about ideas and the second thing that she was really important for was developing the art of the microphone in other words how do you talk on radio. It's not the same as writing. You can't just read out a lecture um, because you're talking to people who are listening in their own home. They expect something a bit more conversational. It's not like being on stage where you have to kind of shout to be heard at the back of the auditorium. People don't want to claim that. So so she was really useful in, in developing the art of how do you write for radio in a way that makes it feel intimate and, and conversational and yet gets important ideas across.
0: You mentioned that Hilda Matheson persuaded Virginia Woolf to appear on the BBC Although many thought it was, the BBC was over-identified with highbrow culture, didn't Wolf think it was a little too middle-brow?
1: Yeah, uh, the betwixt and between uh, company, she called it, rather dismissively. Um, now, it, there is a bit of a backstory here, of course, because the great Hilda Matheson at the BBC was having an affair with Vita Sackville West at the same time. So there was a little bit of personal jealousy going <laughs> on here. But but Virginia Wolfe had a, had, had a more... Um, fundamental objection to the BBC, which was that she she believed passionately in the sort of purity of high culture and passionately in the, in the purity of low culture, if you like. But what she really most despised was, was all that fell in between an attempt to kind of compromise or to sort of smooth over the edges of high culture, to make it more accessible in some way. And she thought the BBC was, was really guilty of this. Now, I mean, I think the defence to the BBC was, was that Reith and his lieutenants believed that the BBC should be slightly ahead of public taste, well, but not so far ahead that it that people lost the pursuit, as it were. Well, f- um, so fame- if it was too... yeah
0: no, uh, no, finish your thought. I'm sorry.
1: Well, I mean, so, so the thinking was that if it was too far ahead, if it presented something that was just difficult without any help, any guidance, any support, uh, any sort of mediation, then it would just uh, go to waste, as it were. It would be hard for people to kind of make sense of it. So they had this sort of democratic impulse, which was to try and make high culture at least a little bit more accessible. And in doing so, of course, sometimes that worked and sometimes the compromises were too much.
0: That was what I was going to bring up. Famous writers were appreciated, but sometimes tricky to handle. Because, didn't George Bernard Shaw read his own plays live on the air doing all the the voices and singing but object to being censored and being told what time he should end his <laughs> yeah. broadcast
1: yeah Yeah, I mean, Bernard Shaw, the the relationship between George Bernard Shaw and BBC is in many ways sort of really, really emblematic of, of the challenge of broadcasting in the 20s and the 30s because the BBC desperately wanted Bernard Shaw on air. I mean, wow, what a catch. And having him on air performing his own plays and his own readings, wow, of course they wanted that. On the other hand, Bernard Shaw wasn't someone who really kind of got the necessary compromises of broadcasting. In other words, he believed it was sort of, you know, unfair of the BBC to to have a schedule that meant he might have to stop after two hours. Um, he he had more political objections because the BBC at that time was prevented by the government until 1928, it was prevented from broadcasting on issues of quotes, controversy. Mm -hmm. um and bernard shaw believed passionately that you know he should be allowed to be controversial now i mean i've looked at the memos and the correspondence between bernard shaw and producers at the bbc they were actually bending over backwards to say look you can pretty well talk about anything you want to but you've got to kind of you know we we do we can't give you unlimited airtime, and we do need to kind of you know have our own input here it's not just you doing what you want on air we have to think about people listeners getting a bit tired maybe after 2 hours of bernard shaw you can have too much of a good thing so so in many ways he was typical of of a writer who just didn't quite get that broadcasting was an art of it of its own. You know, it had, it had its own artistic kind of constraints and so on. He saw it as as merely a publishing platform for pre-existing work. And people at the BBC were starting to think of radio as an art form in itself, which you know, in which which time and duration and and sound and voice all had to be kind of considered artistically.
0: Well, didn't. He? King George initially declined John Reith's proposal for Christmas matches from the Sovereign to the British Empire, which has become a yearly tradition?
1: Yes, and and, I mean, there's a long tradition I'm afraid of the royal family being a little bit curmudgeonly about broadcasting. I mean, later, they didn't really want cameras uh, for the coronation, uh, and King George needed a lot of persuasion uh, about going on TV. There was something... It was one of those cases where, it, in a sense, it, you know, there was an older version of the royal family which was much lived in private, and the sort of it, it assumed that its mm. dignity was protected by distance in some way, but in nineteen thirty two we get the first of what becomes a tradition you know the Christmas Day royal broadcast and King George is there broadcasting from Sandringham, uh, one of the many royal palaces uh, and he broadcasts uh, not just to people in Britain but across the empire um, it's 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 just a few weeks after the BBC had launched its international Empire service as it was called then and and it sort of creates this sort of this sort of mythical notion of of the king being at the center of a family, connecting the different families of the empire in New Zealand and Australia and Canada and South Africa and, and so on. And so, yes, it's become uh, this, this tradition. But it's a tradition that the royal family needed to be persuaded. But
0: resisted at different times. In 1953, the BBC offered extensive coverage for the first time of Queen Elizabeth's coronation. And didn't royal officials question whether mere subjects had a right to witness the ceremony?
1: Yes, they didn't really want. uh, Well, there was a willingness to have cameras covering uh, the coronation up to a point, but they still believed that the the actual coronation ceremony had a sort of sacred, uh, spiritual, religious centre to it, at the centre of Westminster Abbey, and that the cameras shouldn't really intrude upon that sacred moment. And so yeah, uh, royal family officials and the, the, the Conservative government of the, of the time, uh, the Winston Churchill uh, government, were dead against really giving the BBC access to the kind of the full ceremony. And it, and it ha- the BBC had to work really hard and actually engage in, in a little bit of foul play to get their way. Well, so they, first of all, they leaked details to the press of these difficult negotiations in order to stimulate public demand. And then when the palace op- officials said, look, you can have cameras in, the, in Westminster Abbey, but nothing close up, uh, they had a rehearsal and they used a wide angle lens on the camera to show the Queen at a distance. And then on the day of the coronation themselves, they just changed the lens on the camera so that they had a lovely, lovely close-up. Well, she'd, and of been, course, queen. No one...
0: she'd been queen for so long that this has not been become an issue in the years since. No,
1: no it, uh, it hasn't, because no one complained, because, in fact, it was a, it was a successful broadcast. Uh, 20 million people watched it. It was the biggest sort of television uh, uh, event uh, of the time. Um, and... You know, it although it didn't in one go change the status of television in Britain that was part of a kind of slower uh, process and and a lot of people were buying TV sets because they wanted to watch football, not coronations um, but it was an important demonstration of what the BBC could do if it threw. Vast amounts of resource at a single event, you know, many, many cameras, microphones, hundreds of microphones, hundreds of commentators and producing this sort of uh, extraordinary commentary. And Richard Dimbleby, who was comment- commentating on the coronation, uh, he was so skilled at kind of judging just through short, rather portentous phases, uh, phrases that. Uh, slotted in between the archbishop's uh, uh, words and the sort of trumpets blasting that it was almost as if the BBC was sort of conducting the service itself. Um, so so in the end it was too successful for anyone to complain about it.
0: This is WBAI in New York, 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org <laughs> you're enjoying my conversation with David Hendy. If you sign up to become a, a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $50 or more, you can receive a free copy of his book, the BBC, A Century on the Air. Just go online to give2wbai.org. To That's given, then the number 2, wbai.org, or call 212-209-2950 during today's show. And we'll be happy to send you a copy. But don't forget to make that $50 donation in the name of Leonard Lopate at large. And, and we thank you very much. And return to David Hendy who uh, is a a writer and broadcaster and emeritus professor at the University of Sussex. His books include the award-winning On the Air, A History of Radio 4. Maybe later we'll even get to talk a little bit about Radio 4. When did uh, the the BBC World Service begin? What what sort of arrangement does it have with public broadcasting in the United States, radio and television?
1: Well, in many ways it started sort of through a series of sort of not quite accidents, but it sort of came into existence in stages. So first of all, as, as I sort of mentioned, in 1932, the BBC launched an empire service, which was its first Experience of international broadcasting, but the Empire service was really broadcasting to kind of as it were the the, the white British world um, It was broadcasting to the to the, the colonial class and the expatriate community of, of Brits And that's something right. that's
0: been a problem over the years Radio 4 was accused of being a little white
1: Yeah, and ignoring and,
0: and, uh, ignoring people of color
1: yeah and, and and I think the BBC has you know historically been slow it's it's but but again the BBC does so much uh, across such a wide range that it's impossible to generalize it's impossible to generalize so so you know in nineteen i mean just to return to the issue of the world service in nineteen thirty eight you you get um, the start of an Arabic service from the BBC. And that's, this is a response to Nazi Germany and Mussolini's Italy starting to really ramp up propaganda broadcasts. And the BBC worried about this. So it launches an Arabic service. Then um, on the eve of war, it, it effectively launches a French, German and Italian service. And then in, in the Second World War, br- overseas broadcasting becomes crucial. And it's crucial, partly because the BBC wants to kind of create a sort of sense of friendship with the Allied nations. It wants to integrate the Allied effort. It's broadcasting to North America because it's interested in trying to kind of communicate to American uh, listeners the, the the urgency of the fight against fascism. Um, and it's also broadcasting to occupied Europe. And by the end of the war, you've got something like 20 million people in, in, in mainland Europe listening to the BBC. And they've listened to the BBC, you know, and that's a dangerous thing to do in occupied Europe. It was an illegal thing to do. So to listen to the BBC. And, and the reason that they did that was that the BBC, it, it didn't always tell the whole truth. It was operating under under quite intense government restrictions.
0: And I it wanted to get to that. couldn't report everything.
1: Yeah. And could,
0: because he, I, he, because uh, it, it, there were real problems during the general strike in Great Britain in 1926, and most newspapers were temporarily shut down. Uh, it was the first time the BBC was considered an essential service, but wasn't it obliged to make announcements on behalf of the government while at the same time reporting neutrally about the government's actions? <laughs> that, that's uh, yes. an inherent contradiction.
1: Yes. I mean, it tried to get around this by by announcing on air uh, the the announcer, the newsreader, if you like, would read the news. And then he would say, we have been, you know, we are now required to read out the following government announcement. So it would it would label as sort of separate and sort of duty bound the announcements from government but it was and the BBC was in a very difficult position in the general strike it was the only real outlet for news the newspapers weren't being printed but there was someone who was aggressively wanting to take over the BBC by the government. And that was the Chancellor of the Exchequer, Winston Churchill, who loathed the BBC, always has, always did loathe the BBC. But in 1926, he wanted to take over the BBC completely and turn it into a government mouthpiece. Now, did John Reith do the right thing? He basically said... um, In order for us not to be taken over, we have to kind of, you know, there are certain sort of compromises. We have to kind of tack, as it were, a little bit towards the government side, a natural bias towards the government. His reasoning for this was uh, the BBC is for the people. The government is for the people. So, in this particular crisis, we are for the government. And he implied that it wouldn't always be the case. Sometimes the government wouldn't be for the people, in which case the BBC wouldn't be for the government. But in this particular instance, um, you know, he saw the BBC's role as, as far as possible, trying to take the heat out of it. It was required to carry government statements. It did. Carry statements and reports from the striking side, but what was missing from the BBC's coverage were the voices of the strikers. So, uh, and that was because the, the the government stopped the BBC. So there was a you know the the Prime Minister, the Conservative Prime Minister Stanley Baldwin, got his turn on air during the general strike. When the Labour leader Ramsay MacDonald wanted a, a right of <laughs> reply, the BBC were ready to put him on air, didn't see anything controversial about it. Uh, but word came from 10 Downing Street that mm-hmm. we would rather you didn't. But you, the BBC, will have to tell the Labour leader that he can't. So it was that arm's length, well, we're actually kind of interfering with you, but we're going to leave you to carry the can for this.
0: When did the BBC and the government begin to make contingency plans as World War Two approached? Uh, did they... Did they strengthen transmission in the event that Britain was attacked from the air?
1: Yes, they. I mean, this so planning really took place for since I guess the mid thirties. Nineteen thirty six is when the first discussions about planning for war. They they accelerate after the Munich crisis in nineteen thirty eight. What you've got with the BBC are two essential problems. One is. it, it's got a function in war. It, its function is to provide up to date information, but also to nurture public morale in what will inevitably be a sort of series of setbacks and a sort of miserable few years. So it's got an important function. On the other hand,
0: the, um, the government wants it to be a propaganda tool.
1: Yeah, you've got so well. The government want so the government in a national emergency, the government has the right to take it over, and in in effect, it. it In an official sense, it took over the BBC.
0: But didn't Um, Alan Bullock, the Oxford historian who worked at the BBC during the war, describe the relationship between the BBC and the government as a constant pull and push?
1: Yes, and the, and the reason that he described it as that is that the government, no matter how hard they tried, they, they, they couldn't monitor everything, and people at the BBC would also argue back against them. I mean, they did not accept directives and orders uh, without arguing. So it, it was a constant pull and push, as, as Alan Bullock said. Um, and if you read, say, uh, the official history of the political warfare executive, which was the sort of... the Government sort of uh, um, political warfare operative that was in theory directing the BBC's broadcast to Europe, there is acknowledgement there that they didn't always get their way. They'd appointed someone important uh, to as a sort of government man to take over the BBC's broadcast to Europe. And within a few months, they regarded him as, quotes, half the BBC's man. Um, and and part of the reality was that it was the BBC that knew how to turn messages into programmes, and the government really didn't know about that. They, they, they had messages, they had lines of propaganda that they wanted to get across, but the BBC's trump card was to say, look, if you want to get propaganda across, people are, it only works if people listen. And people are only going to listen in Europe and other parts of the world if they trust us. For them to trust us, we have to be heard to be telling the truth. We have to own up to military defeats as well as military victories and so on. And through building up that trust, then you can get your sort of messages across, but you also have to get them across in ways that are accessible and entertaining and so on. And this was the same for the home front as well. I mean, if the government had its way, they would just have endless series of sort of civil servants and government ministers making dreary announcements about food rationing and so on. And the BBC battled away and, Finally, persuaded the Ministry of Information, as it was called, a very Orwellian-sounding <laughs> organisation, persuaded them that it was best if the BBC worked out how to do these programmes, and they got the messages about food rationing across through through comedy sketches and entertainment, or or, or through lighter discussions, and and they got people listening, and it, that was an important part of this understanding of the BBC's kind of relationship with government, which is that on paper the government in charge. In reality, it cannot fully control this machine.
0: What, what happened when the BBC's London headquarters broadcasting house were bombed during the Blitz? Didn't millions mm. of listeners hear the bombing on live on air?
1: It, they did. Um, and and, how and how the re-
0: extensive was the damage?
1: It was pretty extensive. So what happened is that um, at... Just after eight o'clock on Tuesday, the 15th of October 1940, height of the Blitz, uh, a 500 pound bomb comes crashing through the seventh floor window of Broadcasting House, BBC's headquarters in central London, and it plummets through two floors and gets lodged in uh, the fifth floor uh, music library. Now, the whole building shakes, it's covered in smoke and dust. So are, people are evacuating the building, but slowly and calmly because, well, the worst is over. What they hadn't realized at that point is that this is, in fact, a delayed action bomb. Uh, and, and an hour later, at one minute and 50 seconds past nine, the bomb explodes, just as people are trying to remove it and get it, hurl it out of the window. And so... Seven people die, 23 people are injured. uh, And meanwhile, the news is being read by Bruce Belfridge, the BBC announcer, in a basement studio. And what they hear is a sort of dull thump in the background. And Bruce Belfridge hesitates for just a moment and then carries on. Now, in that moment, we we discover later from his own account, he he was busy blowing dust and, and, and plaster off his script, which had come down from the ceiling. Um, but he was sort of congratulated for his sort of coolness
0: under fire. David and Hendy so he, is my yeah. guest on today's Le- – I have to do a break here. Uh, he's my guest on today's Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM. We're talking about his latest book, the BBC, A Century on Air, published by Public Affairs. As, as Russia is trying to cut off the flow of information in Ukraine by attacking its communications infrastructure – the BBC, it turns out, is revisiting a broadcasting tactic that that was popularized during World War II, shortwave radio. It said this week that it would use radio frequencies that can travel for long distances and be accessible on portable radios to broadcast its World Service news in English for four hours a day in Kiev and in parts of Russia. Now, so it was doing – it was uh, – it, it really lent uh, an awful lot – To the uh, the war effort during World War Two.
1: Yes, I mean I think that um, broadcasts uh, over, I mean broadcasts at home uh, really reflect the the BBC. Needing to be attuned to public taste in a way that it hadn't in the 20s and 30s, it had always had to take some account of public taste, but it was vital for people to listen, and therefore it was vital for the BBC to be attuned to what listeners needed and wanted. So they that's sent, important said, on they home sent
0: coded messages during the war. Yeah,
1: they did, and this was something that very, very few people at the BBC knew about at the time. So this was a series of, of phrases. Uh, That would be they would arrive at the BBC on a daily basis um, with from secret couriers carry with their code names from, for instance, the Ministry of Information or uh, the security services or in some cases, exiled governments, the the Polish exile government or the French exile government and so on. And these coded messages were just phrases. Uh, Jack greets Jill's cousin. Or something like that, something sort of slightly banal sounding, and these phrases would just be snuck into program scripts, and there would be uh, maybe several messages a day, uh, and these messages uh, would be communication to either British. Uh, special operatives, agents who are working undercover in occupied Europe, or to resistance movements in Europe. And they would be saying things like confirming that an operation should start or an operation to blow up a bridge should, yeah. should uh, uh, end or someone was due to arrive. And at key points in the war, the number of messages would be rapidly increased. So on the eve of D-Day, um, you know in the evening before d day there were there were hundreds of messages being sent over the French service in particular and and that that initiated a wave of um, uh, of, of action by French resistance fighters on the first day of the invasion. Um, and, and there is plenty of evidence from the archives of resistance movements and so on that this, this elaborate and unknown system of, of codes did have a meaningful impact on resistance acts in Europe.
0: Penelope Fitzgerald wrote a novel, Human Voices, based on her experience working at the BBC during the war. But I want to address another crisis. There seem to be so many. Uh, After Egyptian President Nasser nationalized the Suez Canal in 1956, why did Anthony Eden create a secret plan with Israel and France uh, and uh, request airtime to address the nation, uh, but... uh, Tried to get the BBC not to air the views of the opposition.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I mean, this is—I mean, this is something that politicians have a tendency to do, right? Um, so, I mean, Anthony Eden at the time was convinced that, in a sense, Britain was at war, and therefore, war conditions applied. And if war conditions applied, there needed to be national unity, and everyone had to buckle up and support whatever it is that the government had decided. Well, the BBC knew uh, that public opinion was in fact divided. It, It disputed whether or not Britain was formally at war. Um, And it was very clear from their knowledge, broadcasting in the Middle East, they had a long experience of broadcasting in Egypt and so on, um, that public opinion, uh, not just in the Middle East, but at home, uh, was deeply divided. They saw it as entirely legitimate. That the leader of the opposition, the Labour leader Hugh Gatesgill, should have a right of reply. But there was a showdown with people um, from the BBC summoned to government offices, shouted at by senior military Mm. uh, leaders. Um, And, you know, the the result was, in a way, the reverse of what happened with John Reith in the general strike in 1926, because the BBC officials basically refused. To bow to government pressure, but and Eden, they went ahead.
0: But Eden was displeased enough to want to censor or even take a, take over the BBC. Uh, yes, he threatened how, that. Yes, how was that, that resolved?
1: By the BBC standing up to the government. I mean, you know, I mean, I mean, it, it's always more complex than that. But essentially, the BBC called the government's bluff and went ahead and gave Hugh Gatesgill, the Labour leader, a Mm. right of reply, a broadcast. Um, And in a sense, it, it, it was encouraged, I suppose, to believe that it had public opinion on its side and that it wasn't necessarily asking for something unreasonable. I think there was an understanding at the time that even... Conservative politicians thought that Eden had gone too far, and I think there was an understanding that Eden was—he was an ill man, he was uh, out of control. And I think to, to that extent, even though Eden was was threatening to rough up the BBC, I think there was probably just a kind of a, a, an astute political calculation that the BBC would get away with standing up now i mean there there were repercussions in terms of of uh, the government kind of complaining about needing to control Uh, broadcasts on the World Service or the external services as they were called then much more closely. So, you know, governments always find a way of kind of seeking revenge. I have to leave
0: it there. Unfortunately, we've run out of time. So then there's so much more in the story. I can't get to Margaret Thatcher's complaints against (laughs) the BBC uh, and her feeling that news coverage was biased and irresponsible. And the fact that the BBC has been criticized from both left and right. But uh, I recommend this book It's David Hendy's The BBC, A Century on Air, published by Public Affairs. Thank you so much for being on our show today.
1: It was a pleasure.
0: And that brings us to the end of our show. My great thanks to Deborah Freeman for preparing today's interview. Also to Reggie Johnson, my audio engineer, and to Keziah Glow, the executive producer of Leonard Glow, at large, for all of the important work that they do throughout the week. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more of our one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access our nearly 700 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Our podcast, which surpasses. One Million Plays is available on iTunes, Apple, and everywhere else you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at wbai.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to support WBAI to keep the show coming to you weekdays from 2, 1 to 2 p.m. Unlike the U.K., where everyone has to pay a license fee, we rely solely on the support of our listeners. So we're asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by calling 212-209-2950 or going online to give to wbaiorg That's given the number 2, wbai.org. Please do it right now so we can continue bringing this unique, in-depth content, information you don't usually get anywhere else. And as I mentioned earlier, anyone who makes a contribution of $50 or more in the name of Leonard Lopate at large right now can receive a copy of the book we've been discussing, the BBC, A Century on the Air by David David Hendy. Uh, You might also consider becoming a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy. Either way, I hope you'll call right now because BAI relies totally on listener donations. We don't take ads or foundation grants, and that allows us to be completely free speech radio. So please go online to give to WBAI.org or call 212-209-2950 to play a part in keeping this historic station the only one on the New York radio dial that's 100% listener-sponsored, alive and thriving with your tax-deductible support. We're off next Monday and Tuesday, but I hope you can join us again on Wednesday for the next installment of Leonard Lopate at Large. Have a great weekend.